The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 33, at how eternal perspective banishes fear. One of the great privileges that I had in my, and have had in my Christian life is to be a witness for Christ in the country of Japan. And while I was there ministering, my wife and I and our two older children were there. They were born and with us at that time. Uh, we started to learn of the great heritage of Christians who have gone before us and were willing four centuries before that to lay down their lives for Jesus Christ. Recently, I read the story about one of them, a, a 12-year-old boy named Ibaragi-kun. 12-year-old boy confessed faith in Jesus Christ and was rounded up with 26 other Christians and led to a place where there were 27 rude crosses. And these 27 were going to be executed for their faith. They're going to be nailed to the cross, each one of them, unless they renounced. And the captain in charge of the execution came and just had pity on this 12-year-old boy, Ibaragi-kun, and kind of knelt down and put his arm around his shoulder and said, uh, you have so many years ahead of you. Why don't you renounce your faith in Christ and be Japanese and live a Japanese life and turn away from this early death? And he started to cry and he shook his head and he turned and he said, please tell me, which cross is mine? And the man was just struck by this and just kind of weakly pointed to one in the middle. And he ran over to it and he embraced it and he hugged it and he died on it. Twelve-year-old boy. Now, I'm speaking to young people today. I'm speaking to children. Are you ready to lay down your life for Christ? And if a 12-year-old boy four centuries ago can do it, what about us? And maybe God isn't calling on us to lay down our lives this week for Jesus Christ. Maybe he's just calling you to lay down your entrancement with your reputation among your friends. To lay down your reputation, be willing to go across the hall at, at college or go across the office to a, somebody in a cubicle or an office uh, right across the way and share Christ. Maybe across the street. Maybe to pick up the phone and call uh, a relative that you know is not a Christian. And just out of love to, to throw away your reputation in that person's eyes, knowing full well that there's a very good chance that they'll reject the gospel, and then it'll get weird between the two of you, and it will. Are you willing to risk it? Twenty years ago, I gave my life to Christ. It wasn't long after that that I was introduced to a companion. I would not call it a friend, but a companion that's been with me every step of the way since. And that companion is fear of man. Fear of man. Because I was introduced early on through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ to the evangelistic call that we are to be witnesses for Christ. And if you're going to be a witness for Christ, you have to come face to face with this foe, really, fear of man. How do we overcome that foe? How can we conquer our fear and be witnesses for Christ? I think that's what's facing us in the text today. How do we embrace the cross that God has for us and not run away from it because we're afraid? How do we live the Christian life? And Jesus is giving us, I believe, in, this, in these verses, eternal perspective as a remedy for fear. Now, what do I mean by eternal perspective? Well, in the 1400s in Florence, Italy, artists discovered something called the vanishing point. 
And it put perspective in drawing so that from then on things looked accurate. Have you ever seen those medieval tapestries or paintings and they look a little weird? Everybody looks the same size, the city's the same size, everything's the same size. And it looks strange. But the artist in Florence, Italy discovered something called the vanishing point where things get smaller the further away toward the horizon they go. And from that point on, things look like a photograph. The artists were incredible. One of the artists who perfected this technique was Albrecht Dürer, who was a German woodcutter and did incredible uh, art. He also loved the Reformation. He was a friend, a personal friend of Martin Luther. And what he said is, when I listen to Martin Luther preach, I feel my fears and anxieties banished. I think that's what the vanishing point does, perspective does. As we look at things from an eternal perspective, fears are banished. They tend to disappear. We're not afraid anymore what people are going to think. Actually, the more they heap abuse on us, the gladder we are in one sense. And that's what Jesus is trying to work with us here. That we would see all things in the light of eternity. That we would see our own lives that way. That we would see our neighbors as souls who will someday stand before God in judgment. That we will see God himself as the ultimate issue and his pleasure as our greatest treasure. Now, in order to understand this passage, I think, as always, we need to step back and get some perspective. Perspective within the gospel itself. This is the first book of the New Testament. This is the first written testimony in the New Testament of the life of Jesus Christ. Now, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of those four gives us a viewpoint of Jesus Christ. Each of them comes at it a little bit different way. Matthew comes at it from the view of of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and specifically that Jesus Christ has the credentials and the right to be the king of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this kingdom was inaugurated or begun when Jesus entered into the world and when he began his preaching ministry. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so in one sense, the kingdom is, is right here, it's immediate. From the time that Jesus began his ministry, the kingdom was here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent. Or he said in Matthew 12, 28, he said, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the kingdom in one sense is here, now. But in another sense, it's not yet. And so we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next one? Thy kingdom come. That's a petition. Oh, Lord, may your kingdom come. What does that tell you? It's not here yet. Well, what do we mean by your kingdom come? He says in the next line, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom. That we would do God's will from our hearts with a joyful spirit, doing all of the things that he has commanded gladly. That is the nature of his kingdom. And it's advancing. The kingdom advances. It moves out. We're going to see later, God willing, when we get to the parables in Matthew 13, a a principle of growth. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed, you know, sunk down in the soil and it bears fruit. There's a sense of growing. Well, how does it grow? Well, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looks out over the crowd and he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he calls his disciples to him and he, and he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so there it is. There's the field where the kingdom of heaven is going to be growing. It's people who don't know the Lord. It's people who are harassed and helpless. They're tormented by their sins. They're under the wrath of God. And they have no chance of salvation except for a message called the gospel. And then in Matthew 10, he prepares 12 
apostles, 12 men, and sends them out into the world. The 12 apostles are our forerunners in this ministry, this gospel ministry. And we follow in their footsteps. They went out into the world and they proclaimed a gospel message. And Matthew 10 is their, their marching orders, the, the original instructions that he gave to them for this witness. And we know that even though Jesus was in that time and at that place speaking just to them, yet at the same time the words just seem to swallow up all of history and take us in as well. And so we can go to Matthew 10 and say, Lord, how can I be a witness for Christ? Now, as we read through Jesus' instructions in the 12 to gospel messengers, it seems like it's going to be a hard life. Look down at verse 14. It's the first hint there that there's going to be trouble ahead. He says, go to towns and villages and look for a person uh, to take you in. And it says, though, suddenly in verse 14, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. So it could be that there will be some people who will not welcome you. There'll be some people who will reject you. They will not take you in. They will not welcome you. They have no interest in the gospel of the kingdom. Well, that's just a hint. Later on, he says more directly in verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. What do you think that means? Sheep versus wolves. Sheep, wolves. Who do you think is going to win? The sheep win, right? But only by dying. And so it's going to be tough. It's going to be harsh. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be opposition. And then he says it even more plainly later on. Look what he says in uh, verse 17. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Look what he says in verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you. Because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. And so this is obviously opposition. This is attack. This is a, a gospel advance only against great odds, against great opposition, requiring great courage. Now, when you read these verses, what do you think is the most natural thing to pop in your mind? Imagine if you were the 12 apostles. You were standing there and you are listening. What starts to creep in? Fear. Fear, it starts to grow and you start saying, wait a minute. You know, it's been good up to this point, but this isn't what I signed on for. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, Jesus has been going around doing all kinds of miracles, but where is Jesus heading? He's heading to the cross. And even in the next section we're going to look at, God willing, next week, he says you have to embrace the cross too. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And so he's giving a lifestyle of embracing a cross. And yes, that's exactly what he's calling us to. But how do we deal with the fear? And that's what Jesus is dealing with in these verses in particular. Christ here is banishing fear. Look what he says in verse 26. He says, so do not be afraid of them. Look what he says in verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Verse 31. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's working on the issue of fear. Three times in these small, this small section here, he's saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. So he's zeroing in on the fact that I know how this must be hitting you. I understand how this must sound to you, that you're going to have to give over everything precious to you. I understand that fear is going to start to creep in. But don't be afraid. That's what he's saying. Now, fear is rooted in unbelief, isn't it? 
Imagine, if you would, an emperor sitting up on his throne room, on his chair. And he summons you, and you're honored that he would even notice you. And you come right to the front, and all of the court is surrounded. They're all in their beautiful clothes. And he gives to a herald a little scroll and says, bring it down to him. And you roll it up, uh, unroll it, and there are some instructions for you to do with your neighbors. You're supposed to do this or that or the other. It's coming right from the emperor. Can you imagine reading that and saying, I can't do this. What will they think of me? What will they think of you? This is a command from the king. The real issue is not what will they think of you. What will I think of you? That's the real issue. And so imagine this. Imagine if Jesus were right in front of you at all times. You could see him with your eyes. And he's commanding you to witness and share the gospel with that person right there. Would you obey or disobey? I think you'd obey. But now he's not there right in front of you. You have to see him only by faith. And when fears start to creep in, you can see that fear is rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in unbelief. It's because we don't believe that God has commanded us to do this. And so Jesus wants to reach down and just uproot that fear so that we're not afraid. You know, fear paralyzes the gospel advance. If God wants you to go witness to your neighbors, wants you to go witness to your friends and family and you don't do it out of fear, the gospel is paralyzed through your unbelief, through your fear. And so he must root out this fear so that you can, in fact, be a gospel witness. Now, what is Christ's tactic? What approach is he taking here? Well, he's doing what we call faith-filled reasoning. He's reasoning with us through faith. He's assuming certain things are true, and then he's reasoning out the consequences as a result. He's already done this a few chapters ago. Turn back with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Now, you'll probably remember this from a while ago when we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes to the issue of anxiety. He comes to the issue of fear over material possessions. Right? So look what he says in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? What is he doing there? Is he not reasoning with you? Saying anxiety or worry about these things doesn't make any sense. This is what we call faith-filled reasoning. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then he says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? What is Jesus doing? Well, he's got his, his sights set on anxiety. Anxiety is in, in his crosshairs. What is his weapon? How is he going to strike anxiety down? With faith-filled reasoning. Saying, God provides for the, for the birds of the air. He provides for the grass of the field. You're worth more than they are, so stop worrying. And besides which, has worrying ever done anything good for you? This is his procedure. Now go back to Matthew 10. He's doing the same thing here. He's reasoning with us. He's reasoning with us. He's saying, don't be afraid of them. And then he starts giving reasons. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. And then he says, verse 28, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. It's the same kind of approach that he's taking here. Now, what I think is so wonderful about this is to realize we don't have to be slaves to fear. Jesus is commanding you not to be afraid, right? So he seems to think you have control over this. 
I said at the time when I was preaching about anxiety, you know what anxiety is? It's imagination run amok. Think of all the things that might happen. I'll be a pauper on the street, right? And so your imagination runs amok. So also it is with fear. You think ahead to what it will be like. And so it causes you to pull back from obedience. And so he's working with you. He's reasoning with you so that you won't be afraid. The bottom line here is simple. Do not fear temporary earthly opposition. Rather, fear God and seek to please him for the advancement of his kingdom. Now, I've noted before we get into looking verse by verse, I've noted some paradoxes here in Matthew 10. I think this is very interesting. He says, be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in the synagogues. In other words, watch out for them. What is the implication? Do what you can to not get arrested, right? Do what you can to avoid it. And then he says, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then what does he say? When you are persecuted in one place, flee to the next. Now, just a minute. How do we stand firm and yet flee for our lives? How do you put those two together? Well, I think the idea is that you should seek to preserve your life. You should seek to stay alive if you can. But understand the reason for that. It's so that you can die another day for Christ. That's all. It's so that you can lay down your life in another better setting that God chooses. That you do whatever you can to stay alive so that you can produce fruitful labor for Christ. This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 1. I'm torn between going and being with Christ, which is better for me, but staying here in the body, which is better for you. I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. What is Paul's attitude here? He said, I don't care about my earthly life except that I might be poured out for Christ, except that I might serve him. And so the paradox here is basically stay alive as long as you can so that you can serve Christ as much as you can. But in the end, God may choose to pour you out like a drink offering. And so don't be afraid of that. That's the way of thinking. Now, let's look specifically. What do we mean by eternal perspective? I think there are five things. They're on your outline there at the bottom under the application section. But there are five things that Christ is seeking to get across to us here. And you have to kind of work through and to pull them out. The first is that there is a God who rules over heaven and earth, who judges heaven and earth. He is sovereign. He rules over all things, number one. Eternal perspective also teaches us, secondly, that there is a judgment day in which all human hearts will be revealed. The secrets of every heart will be exposed. There is a judgment day coming. Thirdly, there is for every human soul an eternity to be spent either in heaven or in hell. That's a reality. For every human being you meet, they have a soul and it will spend eternity, that soul will spend eternity in heaven or hell. Fourthly, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the only hope the human race has of escaping hell and living forever in heaven. These are four irrefutable biblical facts. And therefore, fifth, earthly troubles and concerns are minuscule. They're puny compared to the first four facts. That's about what Christ is trying to communicate to us. But he does it in an interesting way. First, he looks at how eternity exposes secrets. Look at verse 26. He says, So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. In the NIV, the so is a little weak. It'd be therefore. And so this is how we begin. He begins reasoning with us so that we're not afraid by saying therefore. Well, therefore causes to look up 
at what, what he was just saying. In verse 23, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the city of, the, of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Verse 24 and 25, a student is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? What is he getting at? Persecution is inevitable for the faithful Christian. It's inevitable. Therefore, listen to what I'm going to say because I want to help you. I want to help you not be afraid. That's what the word so or therefore means at the beginning. So he says, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid of them. He gives them a command. He gives us a command. You don't need to be afraid. As a matter of fact, you must not be afraid. You must work against this kind of fear. Don't be afraid. This is a command from your king. And he gives it three times. So I think we should listen very carefully. Do not be afraid. And then of whom? Do not be afraid of them. These are human persecutors. It may be the government councils in front of whom you're going to be giving a, a defense. It may be um, your family members who betray you or your friends who betray you over the government. It may be any human being. The them in that verse are human persecutors, human opposers. Don't be afraid of people. That's what he's saying. Don't be afraid of them. Proverbs 29:25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Fear of man is a snare, isn't it? It snares us up. Someone once said, I think it may be Mark Twain, said, I don't know the path to success, but I do know the path to failure. Try to please everyone. Try to please everyone. That's how we fail. Try to please everyone. No, please God and God alone. That's how we succeed. And along the way, there may be others pleased with you as well. Wonderful. Let's have good fellowship. But please God. Don't be afraid of man. Don't fear man. Isaiah 2 verse 22 says, Stop regarding man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? And Psalm 56.11 says, In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Isn't that wonderful? So he says, he lifts your eyes up and says, Don't be afraid of them, of human persecutors. And this is hard to do, isn't it? Imagine if you lived in occupied Holland and you had some, you were hiding some Jews in your house and, and there was a Gestapo raid to the left house and to the right house the last few nights. How do you go to bed and not be afraid? That's hard to do. I'm not saying this is easy. Or imagine you are a house church pastor in China and your church has just been raided and they've taken all the hymnals. You got warning ahead of time and managed to get out of there before you were arrested, but you know they have your name and sooner or later they're probably going to get you too. Or, or perhaps you're a Christian in Vietnam and there are people persecuting, even killing your loved ones and your neighbors because of their faith in Christ. This is not a lightweight command. And Jesus knows full well what he's asking, but he's saying, do not be afraid of them. And so he gives a reason. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Now, he doesn't say what he means here directly, but we know what he's talking about. He's talking about Judgment Day. Now, last week, Bailey Smith had books, remember? The books were up there. And then there was the Book of Life. Well, what's in the books? It's recorded there everything that everyone has ever said or done. Jesus said you'll have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. Now, these persecutors do what they do in secret. They hatch plots just like they did with Jesus. They meet together to conspire against the apostles, right? These plots, all of them will be exposed by God and he will judge them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So don't be afraid of them. God is on the case. 
Everything that, he, that they do against you will be exposed and concealed. But, you know, in a way, it's a kind of a two-edged sword, isn't it? Because it's not just the persecutor's secrets, but it's actually everybody's secrets who will be exposed, which will be exposed. And so if in your heart you're harboring secret unbelief or just behaving like a hypocrite or like a Christian, you're not truly a that's going to be exposed too. When the fire of persecution comes, then it will be shown to everyone that you're not truly a believer. Everything concealed will be exposed and brought to light. Now, if I can actually get off the context here for just a moment, this is a universally true principle about Judgment Day. And I have no idea what's in your hearts right now. I have no idea what you've done this week. But imagine, if you would, everything that you've said and done broadcast up here on the, on the screen so that everybody could see it. Last 24 hours, seven days a week, last week, everything that you've done up there. Can you imagine that? Well, imagine it because that's Judgment Day. Everything that we do, all of our secrets will be exposed and brought to light. Everything. And so, therefore, Paul says, because we have to give an account to God, we must all appear before the judgment seat of God that we may give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. Paul says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade men. That's what he says. So it's, in a way, a two-edged sword. Don't be afraid of them because, you know, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. In a way, that urges us to not have a concealed fear of man. Get it out. Don't care anymore what people think. Live for the glory of God. So that's his first reasoning, eternal perspective. Secondly, eternity validates Christ's words. Look what he says in verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. What does he speak to us in the dark? What, what does he whisper in, in our ears? Well, I would call it the word of God. Anything Jesus said is the word of God, but how much more the gospel message? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What is the gospel message? And so you must speak. You must proclaim. What I speak to you, what I say to you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim. They have their dark secrets, their little hidden plots to persecute you. You have no secrets. Live openly before everyone and proclaim widely the gospel of Jesus Christ, fearlessly and boldly. No secret doctrines, no hidden things. Proclaim this message. Listen to what it says, Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Or Isaiah 40, verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Behold your God. Eternity will validate Christ's words as life-giving. Go out and speak His word. Tell people the truth. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Eternity will validate that the words you speak, Christ's words, will last forever. And so go out and speak the gospel. Thirdly, eternity reveals human weakness. Look what he says in verse 28. So do not be afraid, it says, of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. This is striking, isn't it? Those human persecutors look awfully powerful. There was a time when the Gestapo looked perhaps all-powerful. It seemed like they could do anything that they wanted to anybody, anytime. Communist Party in China looked all-powerful. During the Cultural Revolution, they could take anybody away for any reason and kill. 
and there was no recourse, there was no trial. They look powerful, don't they? It's just a mirage. Because all they can do is kill your body. Oh, wait a minute now, that's big. Was it big to Jesus here? He said, don't be afraid of them because all they can do is kill the body. It seemed like there's something even more significant. Do you realize that we, human race, that we are already under a death sentence? Did you not know that? The wages of sin is what? Death. It is appointed, Hebrews 9.27, unto man to what? Die once. We're going to die. I hope that's not shocking to you. Do you remember John Patton, what that man, the man tried to convince him not to go as a missionary to the cannibals? He said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. You remember what he said? He said, I perceive that very soon you'll be in the grave and you'll be eaten by worms. Either way, our bodies are under a death sentence. But I want to go pour out my life for Christ as a missionary to the cannibals. And so he did. So we're already under a death sentence. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing more. Rather, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear God. Now, Polycarp understood this when he was about to be executed. The governor said, I will cause you to be consumed by fire unless you repent. But Polycarp said, you threaten a fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is quenched. For you do not know the fire of the future judgment and of the eternal punishment which is reserved for the unbelievers. But why do you delay? Do what you will. That's Polycarp. He said, I'm not afraid of your temporary fire. I'm, f- I'm afraid of something more serious than that. The one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As a Christian, you know also spiritually, you've already died to your life in this world. Did you know that? Colossians 3.3 says, You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He also says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your, Your life in this world is already under a death sentence. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? That's, that's Christ's way of thinking. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, cannot kill the soul. And then, fourthly, he says, eternity demonstrates God's absolute power. Look at verses 29 through 31. He says, rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is this? This, this must be God. The devil doesn't have this power. The devil himself will be destroyed in hell. But this is God. Fear God. Now, Every year, for a number of years, when I was up in the New England area, we used to go out at Halloween time and witness in Salem, Massachusetts. Now, I don't know what Halloween is to you, okay? Maybe it's a kid's holiday where you dress up in costumes and go around and get a bunch of candy. In Salem, Massachusetts, it's something altogether different, altogether different. There are over 3,000 registered witches in that city. And as they walk around in flowing black robes year-round with oaken staffs, And as they offer hidden sacrifices and do all kinds of weird, disgusting things, you begin to realize that as a minister of the gospel, that is a dark place that needs the light of the Lord. And so we used to go out on Halloween night and witness. Well, there's one time in particular I'd organized a number of people in our church, and we're going to go out on Halloween, and we're going to witness for Jesus Christ. All day long, I felt the cold hand of fear on my shoulder. I just didn't want to go. I was afraid. And I was looking for excuses. I was wriggling and turning every which way. There was a big storm and it whipped up the, the, uh, the waves into a frenzy. It was close to a hurricane. I remember that. And I thought, oh, the rain, nobody will be there. You know? you know the excuses you start to make when you don't want to do something. And I remember Christy said, you need to go. <laughs> They're going to be waiting at the church. What if you don't show up? You need to go. But I remember the turning point for me was a specific Bible verse. And I'd like you to turn and look at it with me in Isaiah 51.
Isaiah 51. And verse 12 and 13. I could read the whole section, but I'll just zero in on these verses. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men? Do you see that? The sons of men who are but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. For where is the wrath of the oppressor? And then he goes on to make me a promise. The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. Go set them free. But what is he saying? First of all, don't fear men. Fear me and obey me and go out and be a witness. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing. But fear the one who can destroy both soul and body and hell. And then he points to God's absolute power over earthly events in history. Verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus zeroes in here on doctrine. Doctrine dispels doubt. And what does he give us? He gives us God's omnipotence. God rules over all things. Even the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. You think that that bird that you saw on the side of the road there, God didn't know about it? It was God's will that it died when it did. Read Psalm 104. When he takes away their breath, they die and return to the dust. That's what it says. And if a sparrow doesn't die apart from the will of your father, it's sold for a couple of pennies. What about you? He's been crafting your life, building it. Like, you know, some people that build those models with the rigging and the ship and all that, and they paint all the hours, days, weeks, months of labor, and then it's finally finished. He's put more work into you. More work into you. He's been crafting and shaping you and working with you. Do you think your death is going to slip by unnoticed? He didn't notice that you got arrested. He didn't notice that you're in big trouble, that you're on trial for your life. These things escaped his attention. He knows. He's doing it. He's omnipotent. He's ruling over all things. He didn't spare his own son. Why would he spare you? He's crafting through omnipotence. And omniscience, he says, says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I could make a joke at this point, but I won't. He knows how many hairs I have on my head. Does he not measure out how many days you'll be languishing in prison? He knows. He's not saying that you won't have to suffer. He's just saying you won't have to suffer for nothing. That's what he's saying. He'll pour you out, but it'll be for a good end. You will suffer. You may even die. But from your blood will spring up people for Christ. It's going to be for a purpose. That's what he's promising. Not that you won't suffer, but you won't suffer in vain. And then finally, he points to rewards and punishments. Eternity displays rewards and punishments. 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Acknowledges means openly embraces, welcomes, Are you willing to stand under the banner of Christ? To acknowledge Him as your Lord and Savior? Are you willing to go outside the city gate and stand under His cross and bear the reproach that He bore? 
Are you willing to stand with Christ? If so, he will stand with you. And it says in Hebrews 2.11, he won't be ashamed to call you his brother. He won't be ashamed to have you in his family. That's incredible to me that he would not be ashamed of me. What's incredible to Jesus is that we would be ashamed of him. And so therefore he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his father's glory with his angels? Mark chapter 8. And so he says, listen, embrace me, welcome me, show yourself to be a Christian at great cost and I will welcome you. But if you're ashamed of me, if you disown me, I will disown you. Now, after my sermon two weeks ago, I had several people say, wonderful sermon, very convicting, but what about Peter? Didn't he deny the Lord? And so people are very like, how much denying can we do and still be a Christian? That's not really the right question to ask, okay? Yes, it's possible to deny that you ever knew Christ and still end up in heaven. Peter did it. But what else did Peter do? Forty days later, where was he? Downtown Jerusalem. What was he doing? Preaching the gospel. What was happening? Three thousand people were being saved. What happened in the end? He was arrested and taken where he did not want to go. And church tradition said he was executed for Christ. He repented. And he was covered by the prayer of Christ. His faith did not fail. All right? And so acknowledge Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. Embrace him. What application can I take from this? It's very simple. Do you know anybody who needs the gospel? Are you going to see anybody? I'm looking out over probably 300 plus people. You are going to interact with thousands of unbelievers this week. You, as a whole, will interact with thousands of unbelievers this week. Will you confess Christ? Will you share the gospel? Will you speak? Will you invite someone to church even though it's not friend day? We can do that, can't we, Josh? Is it okay? We can invite people to church even when it's not friend day. Will you do it? Will you say something for Christ? Will you reach out? Close with me in prayer. I'm going to close the sermon time and then we're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to pray and then we'll have a time of reflection and preparation for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.